So even after a federal judge had intervened and said, you are doing something that amounts to cruel and unusual punishment, he called the practice inhumane. She sat there and denied that they ever did it and said that she never considered it solitary confinement. So reflection, remorse, reckoning, I, I don't believe that that's happening. When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have to do something. Welcome to PBN. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter.com or Blue Sky at Braden Gall. We should be promoting PBN. What's the handle there on X? At PodBlessNash on Twitter.com. And it is at PodBlessNashville on Instagram. So you can get to us on Instagram if you want as well, which is where all you kids are, of course. None of you are actually on Twitter or X, as we all know. My name is Jamie Holland. I am on X. You can follow me if you want to. Not sure why. At J.R. Holland. Uh, A lot of subtweeting going on on that account. (laughs) I do some subtweeting, for sure. Uh, I do like the airport authority. (laughs) Fiasco. Jocelyn Granberry back on the board. We are the new old, old board, is what we've discovered. Fair. Yep. But Betsy, no, that's another court case. That's Aunt, a different one. Aunt B's trying to create her own, but we're BNAA. I don't, that was right there for the taking. Okay. Nobody took it. BNAA. <laughs> why, why not? Okay. Trademark. Mariba Knight on the show. Uh, obviously, the reporter that dug into the kids of Rutherford County for ProPublica years ago and has now turned into one of the most popular podcasts in the entire world, nay, the universe. Uh, She's going to be joining us a little bit later on. If you don't know the story, the entire criminal justice system of juvenile courts, complete corruption and and sort of just, hey, we're going to make up the rules as we go. Uh, The lawyers who sort of decided to try to fight back against that system and the thousands of kids that were affected by it, a truly uh, excellent podcast. Cannot recommend enough. Make sure you go listen to that. It's from Serial, the New York Times, ProPublica, National Public Radio, uh, and Maribas, the, the the host of the show, did all the work to, to report it. She's going to join us a little bit later on in the show. We talked to her for about like 40, 45 minutes. A lot of questions that you're not going to get from the episodes, but go listen to those episodes. Come back and listen to our conversation with Mariba. And uh, I don't think the story's all done, Jamie. I don't think the story's done yet. More to come. Yeah. And if you think, well, kids of Rutherford County, does that have a national connection at all? Well, go listen to our episode and you'll find out that maybe a judge here in Davidson County shipped shipped a wayward teen down there to Judge Davenport. There you go. And and there's another juxtaposition that I find super interesting, which we are going to talk about because the Jillian Ludwig story has, I I don't know, it's affected the way people are creating content this week, which again, I would hope would happen in in the good possible, the good way, but it's not. Well, there's some East Bank development stuff we'll get to as well. So we've got a couple other stories to get to on the show today, but we'll start with the the Jillian Ludwig story, which we we have covered all of last week with with Steve Cavendish. We have talked about mental health. I I don't know how many episodes, Jamie, um, five, six, seven episodes we've covered mental health through the special session. We have had Glenn Funk on the show, district attorney. We've had the sheriff, Darren Hall, on the show. You can go listen to those episodes and and learn about this particular crisis in our community. And, you know, Shaquille Taylor, 
is responsible for the death of this 18-year-old Belmont freshman. And what happened is a bunch of other pieces of content that are out there have just kind of turned this into a, a giant shit show with podcasts and radio interviews and columns and articles and fact checks. And I, I just, I think, Jamie, we were frustrated this week <laughs> at the quality of the conversation that was taking place that felt like it was agenda-driven and for controversial clicks, for lack of a better term. And what we want to try to do on this show is create a, a platform and a space for you to get to know the issue on your own. And if you want to hear from Glenn Funk and Darren Hall, you do it right here. And uh, I think our conversation about the issue last week with Steve Cavendish was better than anything I heard this week, Jamie. Well, I would just say, don't take the bait. Don't follow the bullshit because it conforms to some preconceived notion you might have about Jillian Ludwig's death, which was awful in every respect. But let's hit some high points. So Shaquille Taylor was previously found not competent to stand trial. Imagine that is the floor you are standing on. That's a low standard. You know, can you help your defense attorney? Versus involuntary commitment. Imagine that's the ceiling that you have to jump real high to touch. As a high standard. So Shaquille Taylor was found not competent to stand trial, but didn't meet the standard for involuntary commitment. Well, first of all, who made those determinations? Well, three doctors. Two of them are employed by the state, Tennessee Department of Intellectually Disabled. And then the third one was Dr. Mary Elizabeth Wood. And she, the Vanderbilt Forensic Psychiatric Department, has a contract with the state of Tennessee. And they all reached a conclusion together that he couldn't stand trial, but he didn't meet the requisite state law because, again, that's the ceiling. You have to jump real high to touch it. You're probably not going to be able to touch it, which is a good thing. That's what we kind of want. As a concept, you don't want to lose your freedom. Easily. Easily. Yeah. But there was a proposed change, and I called it last week a suite of bills, not just any one bill. There was multiple bills that were working their way through the special session that would have lowered the ceiling, if you will. So maybe you don't have to jump to touch it. Okay, You could just reach up there and touch it. And so some of these content creators are publishing straight up bullshit. All right. So one, they said, well, Glenn Funk, the district attorney, he's soft on crime, liberal. Don't want nobody in jail. <laughs> you want more skill tailors in the world, less Jillian Ludwigs. That's what we all want. Bullshit. Yeah. So why didn't he appeal that decision of Angelita Dalton back in May 2023? Well, district attorneys across the state, they're done at the trial court level. That is not a burden, responsibility, or obligation of any district attorney. Meaning they are not capable. Okay, just I want you to use some regular language over there. Just, Glenn Funk cannot overturn. <laughs> no, he, the decision to appeal that case or not is not his. Right. He doesn't have that authority. Guess who does? Jonathan Skirmetti, the attorney general of the state of Tennessee. All matters of appeal of criminal cases are state attorney general obligations. Period. 
why didn't the attorney general do it? Well, because in order to prevail in that appeal, the standard of review of the court of criminal appeals, which is where that motion to dismiss appeal would be heard. The standard is called abuse of discretion. That is the highest fucking standard under the law. It's not going to fucking happen. But even if he wanted to, it's not Glenn Funk's decision to make. If you want to blame somebody for not appealing, you blame the fucking attorney general. Okay. Not the district attorney. Subsequent to that, and so after the special session concluded, Shaquille Taylor was arrested for felony auto theft. He gets a $10,000 bond. That was in September. Correct? In September. Yep. The special session ended in August. Well, the assholes say what? Well, the DA, you know, he wasn't there. Guess what? Guess who's not at, in front of a judicial commissioner at arrest when the motherfucker's setting the bond? Okay, hang on. Uh, you, let's use... <laughs> You're already getting so deep into this. I'm, Shaquille Taylor's arrested for a felony. He he goes where? He goes in front of a judicial commissioner. Okay, this is a this is not a courtroom. This is a, like give give us some details. It's of that. at the downtown detention center. Okay. You get arrested for DUI or anything else, maybe for dropping a drug in somebody's drink downtown. You get taken to the judicial commissioner who's sitting behind a glass bulletproof glass and the officer is there presenting the case to the commissioner and the commissioner makes a bond determination. Okay. Now you would, in this case, it was a judicial commissioner named Steve Holtzapfel. Well, what did he do? Well, he gave Shaquille Taylor a $10,000 bond. Well, how did Steve Holtzapfel get his job? Well, he's one of five who were appointed or hired by a majority of the general sessions court and every other county of this state local legislative body does that but metro has a special law that only applies to counties that have what now you know this already <laughs> what kind of form of government Braden? <laughs> a metropolitan form of government so the council here it was even dumber than i thought <laughs> <laughs> Council. I thought I needed to go deep into the dynamics of the council and the mayor. The council office. here passed an ordinance that said they're going to let the majority. We have eleven general sessions court judges, and they the majority of those judges vote to appoint or hire these judicial commissioners. And Steve Holsev was one of them. He made that determination. I suspect there's going to be a bill in the hopper to provide more accountability for these folks in the future. Let, let's so okay. That you're getting, Sir, bring it back. You're getting very complicated over there. Essentially. There was nothing in place to catch Shaquille Taylor's record or background or mental capacity or these doctors' evaluations of him in this particular situation where in this particular forum. Is that what you're saying? I would like to think that Steve Holtzapfel and friends, his officers, friends that are work with him, had the capability to enter some strokes on a keyboard to deter make a determination. Hey, who is this guy? I don't know the answer to that, but could have been done, I suspect. Okay, it, can I ask you, had it been done, is it then on that individual to stop the process and say, whoa, 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 hang on, we need to handle this one in a different way? Or or maybe he looked and saw it and made his own determination, hey, might as well send this guy out because he's not competent to stand trial. Because he's already been defined by the system. Because it, okay. it's, in, it's in his record 
you could find it. Okay. And so did the house do something to try to prevent this from happening? 100 fucking percent. They did. In the special session. In the special session. They had filed bills and they were moving bills. But as you remember from the special session, what did they do? They went to committees, they gaveled in, and they gaveled out. Said, nope, we're going to pass these three bills because that's what the governor wanted, and that's it. And so at least the House was engaged in action. The Senate was engaged in inaction. So if I were to say to you on this show, that Cam Sexton, House Speaker Cam Sexton, lied about having uh, bills in place that would have helped Jillian Ludwig. Would you say I'm correct, or would you say I'm incorrect? You are very incorrect. Did Cam Sexton in this, in some of this content, did he maybe, um, what's the right word, maybe present it in a, in a way that is inaccurate in any way? Not from what I've read. Okay. I just want to get to the bottom of this. There's a lot of fact checking going on. Well, fact and check. Get the fuck out of here. I mean, the fact checker called her Jillian Taylor. Get the fuck out of here. Uh, seriously? Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. So back to last week and and to the bills and, and your call to folks outside, of, especially outside of our county, to talk to their legislators and say, look, this is something we need to address. And there's more, inform- there's more coming on this subject that's more about mental health in, in other areas, primarily mental health counseling in schools. But along those lines, you think some of those bills that were presented during the special session will be brought back when, when they meet again in January? Is that what you're saying? And then for legislators, for fa- folks out there to go contact their legislators? Absolutely. 100%. I would say they were going to be this, – this session might be one of the fastest regular sessions in memory. Because as you learn from the per diem collection group, <laughs> members of the Senate did not show up. That does not mean they're not going to get their per diem, by the way. It's because the, they did not show because up. Because the speaker blamed them for they, all the mental health problems. Eh, yeah. yeah, you think so? <laughs> Can you draw that straight line? I'm not very good. I'm not a very good artist. Kind of like how you are with math over there. I think I can draw that line. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I think we told you also there's very little appetite for turning down a, over a billion dollars in federal funding. But I do think as part of that mental health conversation that we had last week and and now, I think one of the things I've, I failed to mention last week is if we can afford millions of dollars to put SROs into all of our schools in Davidson County and across the, the state because of safety issues, we need to figure out a way to have, a, have mental health counseling in every school, elementary, middle, high school. There's really no reason to not have it uh, in in our schools. That's something we missed last week. I, I, I should have said it. And I, it's as a part of that working group, the bullshit day, which is the day where a, a gentleman presented to the working group that essentially, and I'm going to use, I want to make sure I get the quote right here. Uh, this is uh, Sal Nuzzo, senior vice president at the Libertarian James Madison Institute said, is that, are you describing what he knows? Nuzzo? Nuzzo. <laughs> is yeah. that a, we're yeah. going to brand that? Yeah. That's a T. <laughs> That's, put that one with uh, God's plant and biz pigs. We can make some t-shirts. What out does of that he one. know? Nuzzo. Nuzzo. He said in his presentation to this working group, which of course did not include the Senate, that 
in Florida, providing students with mental health services have been harmful. I'm sorry if you say that in public to somebody. I'm not sure I'm going to listen to anything else you have to say. I know that people can be right and wrong about things at the same time, but providing students with mental health services. And then, Jamie, who is Marie Williams? She is the commissioner of the Tennessee Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse. So Sal Nuzzo says to the working group task force to turn down federal funding, says mental health Florida, bad for kids. It's bad for kids. It's not good for your kid to have mental health counseling. Murray Williams says that we have 96,000 Tennessee students dealing with mental health issues. 61,000 students in Tennessee are struggling with substance abuse and that she would like to, in theory, get a counselor into every single school in some way, shape or form, a mental health crisis counselor into every single school. Uh, she's going to settle for what, Jamie? Eight million in the next budget, 114 folks to provide those services to 24,000 students. Now, imagine if you're Nuzzo. Imagine if you're Nuzzo. That's 24,000 students that are going to get worse because of the mental health counseling, according to him. <laughs> if you're Nuzzo, I mean, what, what a here. fucking dick. Get the fuck out of here with that shit. Like, hey, I'm going to go Tennessee. I'm going to provide some testimony, this working group. And the state's fucking expert on mental health and substance abuse is going to contradict me in less than 24 hours later. <laughs> I mean, does he have a spouse? Like, hey, you had a shitty fucking day yesterday, didn't you, buddy? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, just so you know, you said the, the that $8 million funding would provide help for 24,000 Tennessee students. Would you like to know how many... Public students were in public education in the state of Tennessee last year, 2022. Yes, Braden. Over a million. So 24,000. We're, we're $8 million in funding to provide counseling for 24,000 students. Now, in her estimation, she is saying roughly one out of six, right? Or is that the national average? That's one, the national. The national one, average. One in six. six youth have had a depressive episode in the last 12 months. Which would align, in theory... About a million students in Tennessee public education, uh, and she claims about 150,000 are dealing with either a mental health issue or substance abuse. That is about one in six. So that, that number actually tracks pretty well within the state. I would argue that we don't need just mental health counseling for just the 160,000 students, but for all one million. Well, the, the idea is if you get a school resource officer, you're going to get a school behavioral counselor too. Like, hey, we're going to give one to protect you, but we're also going to give somebody to help you through the mental health crisis that caused you to need someone to protect you. Sounds fair to me. Math going to math. We got to turn nuzzo into a verb. <laughs> we got to figure out. <laughs> I don't even know if we're saying the name right, and I don't feel the need to apologize. Mental health counseling has been harmful to students in the state of Florida. I'm, I'm fine. What does he know? Nuzzo. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. So it, ultimately, on all this bullshit, on all the content and the noise that's out there that's not, that are empty calories, that are about people pushing their own agendas and trying to get clicks and attention in, a, in an economy that is driven by attention, contact your legislator between now and 
and January and demand action on mental health issues. Demand those bills. You know what, Cam Sexton? If you are not, in fact, lying about any of those bills, go fucking pass them. Go get them passed in January and and, and February. Go do it. Well, and I'm not saying he can't or won't. I'm just saying go do it. I don't think Steve Holsavel should escape accountability here and the council. The system being broken, though, is not all his fault. Well, I, I hear you. He still let the motherfucker go on $10,000 bond for felony auto theft and had a long record. I, no, I hear you. That's too, you. that's too damn low. So, which is not an adversarial proceeding with the DA, I repeat. But the, the council has special legislation that did that. When the General Sessions Court comes to the council for its budget hearing, this question must be asked of those judges. So that way, there's some measure of accountability. No empty calories here on the show, folks. Sometimes I don't understand what you're saying, but no empty calories. <laughs> I need you got a lot of green books in this office. I'm gonna have to read pretty soon here to start keeping up with you. Um, all right, anything else on this? It listen. It is a we've got to also. Are we done with the special working group? Well, I think we well because I would like to shout out Dr. Joe, Senator Dr. Joe. That's Hensley. fine, but I have nuzzo left to say. Uh, I think Dr. Joey Hensley must be listening to the pod because he was quoted in a story by Vivian Jones of the Tennessean that testing is one of the strings required. Boo yeah, and two. <laughs> was, that, was that your? Was that a 1992 victory lap? Is that what that was? No, that's Stuart Scott shout out. Yeah, about 1994. Yeah, okay. Stuart Scott, man. He I lost. I lost. Yeah, R.I.P. Come on, R.I.P. I got you. Uh, there was other reporting about the education working group. You know, when everybody's up in arms about it, you say you got friends calling you, texting you about it. They had a meeting earlier this week. The two Democrats weren't present. It's whatever. That's I w- it. I would say that's they, it. I would say they missed Nuzzo. <laughs> Noted for the record. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we should look. This is this is the only way I can cope with the Jillian Ludwig story is to laugh about this stuff um, because it's all tied together in theory, right? Like. We we talked about you know this lunatic pastor in 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 Lebanon and Mount Juliet who says we shouldn't be we shouldn't spend any money on disabilities. You know nobody needs disabilities. You haven't prayed enough. That's why you're disabled. Well, this working group is looking at how to take care of disabled children, mental health, mental health counselors in schools. It is tied. It's all tied in together. Uh, I know anything about the Lebanon pastor. Yes. You're better off. You're better off. I think we've run it into the ground. I think we're done with the, with the bit. You want to talk quickly? Do you want some East Bank notes real fast, and then we can move on? Because I, it's they've kind of put out their initial what is it called? The initial development area, thirty acres around the Titan Stadium. There's the North Village, the South Village, the area right there between the two bridges, the Shelby Walking Bridge and uh, the Korean Siegenthaler Pedestrian Bridge. Oh, okay. That area is a part of the develop the first this first phase of development. Uh, it's 30 acres. The, the entire the entire East Bank is, fi- reminder, it's 550 acres. 110 of that is owned by Metro. At TPAC is being rumored to be a part of this. The state has thrown in $200 million if it is, in fact, a part of this. And there's a lot of stuff in there that tracks with trying to recapture sales tax to pay for it all. It's a lot of cement. It's a lot of buildings. It's a lot of entertainment. It's a lot of hotels. So far, and again, the plan is not even close to being developed. This is going to happen over the course of the next four months. If you care about affordable housing, the Fallon Group, the, 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 
the, the contract given to the Fallon Group, 1,095 affordable housing units in their preliminary proposal. That proposal is now out and will be, they're working on sending in a sec, sort of a second draft, for lack of a better term. They're going to continue with this process and negotiations up until December council meetings. And then around February, they're going to present sort of the final master plan for this initial this IDA, this initial development area, the 30 acres around the stadium, which is essentially what I'm going to start calling phase one of the East Bank development. They have a timeline of 2027, which is the only reason this stuff is going to go fast. If you care about affordable housing and if you care about transit, because there's nothing in this initial plan that has green space, transit, and affordable housing outside of a thousand units. If you care about all that stuff, which was promised as part of the development plan of the East Bank by the Cooper administration, and certainly Freddie O'Connell running on that as a mayoral campaign on developing the East Bank correctly with transit. I, I think now is your time to reach out to your council member to demand priorities inside of that plan because it's going to happen fast. It's coming fast. The negotiations are happening. As we speak, it is all going to be developed in the course of the next four months, and they're going to start presenting proposals to the council soon, which means if you want your voice to be heard, send an email to your council member. It is linked in the show notes about what you want. What are your priorities? Now is your chance to have a voice because by February, you may not have a voice about how this whole East Bank thing is getting started. So be on top of it. That's all I got to say. Newly elected council member, Rollin Horton, Council District 20, for our old friend J.R. Lynn. That's part of Cat Top Hill and the Nations. Writes an op-ed in the Tennessean. Quote, Reforming Nashville's outdated zoning has the power to transform our city for the better, fostering more walkable neighborhoods and curbing the relentless tide of car traffic and congestion. Let's fucking go. January 1, 1998. I'm ready for the end date on that bastard so it can be buried. Dedicated transit funding referendum, November of 2024 on the ballot. But in order for that to be organized and have and, and be prepared to a point that we can vote on it as a community, it needs to be tied in with the East Bank development and the transit hub. So you, you care about mental health? Reach out to your legislator. Reach out to your buddies in other counties and tell them to reach out to their legislator. You care about transit and housing? Reach out to your council member. Okay? I think that's everything. Stop consuming empty fucking calories. Amen. Amen. Uh, now for like the most nutritional part of the show. Maribyn Knight, host of the Kids of Rutherford County podcast. A fascinating story about corruption, power, just a whole lot of bullshit happening in Rutherford County. She did a fantastic job reporting on this. I hope you've listened to all four episodes. Uh, otherwise, we're going to ask a lot of questions about a lot of different aspects of this. Uh, and get to know the main characters and sort of their motivations and everything. So she was gracious enough to come in studio. Maribel. Hang on. Oh, okay. Sorry. God, that was a long windup for you to interrupt me. We have eclipsed <clears throat> triple digits in ratings. That is what you interrupted me for? Thank you, our valued listeners. Thank okay, you. Okay. Okay. Instead of giving us ratings, which is fine and we do appreciate it, in light of what we're asking contacting legislators, contacting council members for the things that you prioritize in your life. How about instead of consuming empty calories and sharing shit content with each other, if you listen to this show, we appreciate you and love you very much. 
tell somebody about the product. Share the show. We it's it's how we grow. And while the ratings are important, we also need you to be our ambassadors out there in the community. So share the product. Tell somebody about the show. Hey, I got this guy from West Tennessee. Kind of talks funny, but he knows a lot of shit. <laughs> and then there's that other guy, too, <laughs> who's on the show. Just, just tell somebody about it. Get to know your community a little bit better and help us out. Say, join the hive. Oh, we're the hive now? No. Join them, the hive. Oh. Come on. All right. Can I, can I toss to our interview now? Go ahead. Here was our conversation with the great Mariba Knight. Mariba, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming in studio and giving us some time. Uh, congratulations on the pod and the reporting, and uh, good to have you in. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. So normally we start very broadly and want to bring people into the story, but I everybody go listen. Of course, the kids of Rutherford County, everywhere you get your podcasts. Um, so I want to ask you a, kind of a question about the end, though, first. Okay. And about the main character, for lack of a better phrase, uh, mm-hmm. Judge Donna Scott Davenport, who is in charge of the juvenile system in Rutherford County, for lack, again, uh, simplifying it here to be reductive. How do you think she has listened to the show? How do you think she feels if she's listened to the show? Well, I hesitate to get inside her brain because I'm a reporter, but I think based on my attempts to interview her, she feels very misunderstood and she was trying to do what was best for the kids of Rutherford County. And she did what she thought was best for those kids and that there were good outcomes and that we're all just being absurd and ridiculous to assume that and to say that she was doing anything else. She was doing exactly what she thought was right for the kids of Rutherford County. Does she have any data that she could point to that outcomes were improved for the kids of Rutherford County? No, actually in a deposition (laughs) when they, when the lawyers asked her about the skyrocketing statistics of the kids jailed, she said, it's not my job to know statistics. So, I would doubt that she does, <laughs> because apparently it's not her job. And we're off and running. Um, okay, so let's, I just, that's what I found myself thinking, listening to it all, is like, does she have any moments in private, and again, this is informed speculation, we'll call it, does she have any moments in private, and, and frankly, Lynn Duke also, who's the other sort of main character in all of this, who is uh, the head of the, the, the detention center. And on, still on, is the head of the detention And still center. is. I, I just am, I find myself wondering, like, do these two individuals, and there's a whole lot of other people that are complicit in this, but these two individuals are the tip of the spear. And I am just wondering if they have moments in private that they just go, okay, <laughs> maybe we did go a little too far. Do, do you see it? Like, it's, it's mind-boggling. Based on my reporting... I would highly doubt that. Um, I mean, there's a couple of really specific examples, but I'll just, I'll give you one kind of in a nutshell, which is that um, there were seven federal lawsuits circling around this county. One of them was for their use of solitary confinement. Um, There was a class action lawsuit. They were found to be holding children in what amounted to solitary confinement. And they were 
you know, told by a federal judge to stop. There was an injunction to make them stop. The pro- the practice was banned. It was banned across Tennessee. Um, and when she went before the county commissioners, who she would go before every month to talk about the detention center and talk about the numbers and blah, blah, blah. Uh, they were having, there was one time after they had been dealt with this lawsuit after it was settled, like after everything had come out about what they were doing with kids in solitary confinement. And she said, uh, one of the, one of the commissioners said, yo, you're having some behavior problems. So there's some, you know, write-ups like, well, if you could just put the kids in solitary, you could fix that. Right. But we can. And she goes, we never did put kids in solitary confinement. We never did that. They got all their meals. They got all their phone calls, their visitation, some people think that's solitary and some people don't. So even after a federal judge intervened and said, you are doing something that amounts to cruel and unusual punishment, he called the practice inhumane. She sat there and denied that they ever did it and said that she never considered it solitary confinement. So reflection, remorse, reckoning, I, I don't believe that that's happening. One thing that left me wanting at the end was the absence of accountability for judge Davenport. She just decides she's not going to run again Yeah, and nothing done to punish her. Mm-hmm. Convenient. Mm-hmm. Any feedback from your listeners on that or any, <sighs> any answers to that of why that happened? Frustration. I think there was frustration by people. I, I was quite perplexed as a reporter into that whole that whole moment in the in the reporting process, um, essentially, like we, I had done this big story in ProPublica in 2021 about these arrests and about this system, and a lot of impact had happened. You know, members of Congress had been talking about it and wrote a letter to the DOJ, the Attorney General, about it, um, and then you know the governor had been talking about it, and and then some lawmakers, some Democratic lawmakers filed a resolution to oust her. All of my reporting around this time, my sources were saying she is still going to run. Like, she is so defiant. Like, she's like, no, this is my court. This is my system. Like, I am going to run for a third term. And people have been telling her, I don't think that's a good idea. But she was still determined to do it, according to my sources. And then just a day after this resolution was filed, she announced that she would not be seeking re-election. I don't know why. I mean, my my hunch is that there was a fear of losing her pension. You know, there was a fear that if this did escalate and go, to, then it would result in her being disciplined um, and potentially losing her pension. But she, um, so she announced that she was retiring. And at this point, because Governor Lee had asked for a review and a complaint had been filed, the Board of Judicial Conduct had been looking into her. And so immediately I write an email to the Board of Judicial Conduct spokeswoman and I say, well, um, what is the status of of this investigation Um, now that she is announced that she will be retiring this summer? This was in January. okay, and she was going to retire at the end of August. And they wrote me back and said that they no longer had jurisdiction because she w- was retiring. And I and I said, well, but she's going to be on the bench for another seven and a half months. She's going to hear hundreds more cases. I mean, th- what do you mean you don't have jurisdiction? And then they just wrote back, no comment. So 
there is so when you talk about complicity you talk about kind of the holes that we have in our system for accountability like it I feel as though sometimes like they want to stop before they start and this was such a great reason oh well she's just she's leaving anyway you got what she wanted what you know you got what you wanted or whatever people you know who are mad about it um but no, she sat on the bench for another seven and a half months and heard hundreds more cases and faced no accountability. And the Board of Judicial Conduct just kind of threw their hands up and said, well, it's not our it's not our department anymore. Well, they could have reported to the Board of Professional Responsibility because she still has a law license. So they could have instigated those proceedings. And well, only took her five tries, though. Revo- oh, to pass revo- the bar, yeah. Revoked her law license, but... Like yeah. the Board of Judicial Conduct might be the most toothless organization in the state, but you know there's a lot of competition for that. However, <laughs> they just publicly reprimanded Davidson County Chancellor Russell Perkins for being late in issuing opinions. Mm. So, I do hey, always find you can it. lock kids up, yeah, and punish them in ways that are unconstitutional, but don't be late when you do it. As long as you do it on time, you're good. Yeah. Uh, Mary, let's go back to the very beginning mm-hmm. here because it does it, it spans years, almost a decade now, when Wes Clark, who's one of the lawyers in the story, takes his first juvenile case in the juvenile system and like almost instantly realizes that this is FUBAR. Um, what did you like what did you learn about juvenile criminal justice and the system in general? You know, versus maybe the adult system or just like the, the rules and, and, and sort of who's in charge and the order of operations and the power structure. Like, what did you what did you know going into it? And then what did you learn? I assume over years of doing this, what is the thing that you want people to understand about the juvenile system? Yeah, I mean, I had done a fair amount of reporting on the adult system and large adult systems. I mean, I, I cut my teeth as a reporter in Chicago and I covered Cook County, which is, you know, the largest most you know, crowded system in the country. And um, so I was pretty familiar with a courtroom, but juvenile court is a whole different animal. I mean, first of all, juvenile court is technically a civil court. Um, so it, it works totally differently than adult criminal court. Although I would argue it's just basically a carbon copy of it, but it, but it, but uh, ostensibly it is totally different. It has a different mission, which is a mission of rehabilitation. It is, like I said, a civil court. So in Tennessee, you've got delinquency cases and status cases, which are cases that only can be, can be committed by a kid, like drinking underage, smoking, uh, truancy, unruliness. Those are status offenses. So those are seen by the court. But then also you have family court. So it's dependency and neglect. It's DCS stuff. It's, you know, custody stuff. And so one judge or magistrate can see just a huge range of cases on any given day. And then also, yeah, it's got all this different lingo. Like you're not convicted in juvenile court. You're, you have a determination made. Um, and you're not like, there's no warrant. There's like petitions and summons and there's just all these different kind of things, all with the kind of 
idea that like this isn't like a real court like this is like a this is a friendly court and we're trying to rehabilitate you um however on the flip side of that it is an extremely protected court in terms of privacy right and the the reason is is a good one on its face which is that you know kids should not have these things follow them after they turn 18 however like because all of the records are sealed, because many of the proceedings are closed off to the public, um, it is impossible, almost impossible to see inside of a place like juvenile court. So you, so what that does is it shields all the adults in charge, right? Like they can make these decisions and nobody is watching them. And it's really kind of in this like vacuum. And what I learned is that there is so much stuff happening in there and nobody realizes that it might be running amok of the law. I mean, people are already trying to figure out, like, what is juvenile law anyway? And, like, like it, 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 they want it to kind of be like adult law, but, like, they, they also are like, wait, no, there's these totally different set of systems and objectives. And so it is intention. You can tell that it's intention um, in the courtroom and in the, in the determinations that are made. Um, but yeah, I mean, that privacy part is a huge part. Um, the only reason why I was able to really see inside of this one juvenile court is because of the federal lawsuits, because that cracked the door open, right? Like suddenly I could read all these filings and these depositions and these complaints. And I was like, wow, there's some really crazy stuff happening in there. And juvenile judges have an immense amount of discretion. Like they can just decide there's no jury in juvenile court there's she, if no she's jury. A, if she's having a bad day right? yeah there is literally yeah. no jury so a judge is deciding everything about a case they're making all the most important decisions they're deciding how to interpret the law and they're deciding the facts which is not the case in adult court and as much as we all care like you know complain about bail and bond and all that stuff which for good reason but there's they also don't have that in juvenile court so a judge can say like you're talking back to me in my courtroom or in one case a young girl I talked to was jailed for an extra week because she smiled in court because she would get really uncomfortable when she got uncomfortable she kind of like had an awkward like like and the judge was like you think this is funny you're going back for another week oh, what an, so you know that, the, you can't that, get out I can't out. believe she did that I can't believe it. you the can't nerve. yeah you can't like so so no nobody's gonna bail you out like you have no jury so in a way like you have fewer rights than an adult court and and that was really eye-opening to learn um and because it's private and we can't see in, um, we have to rely on state agencies to kind of show us the trends and, you know, um, give us like the numbers across. We have 98 different juvenile courts in Tennessee. And in order to see inside of them, like the administrative office of the courts, they used to produce this big annual report that kind of gave all these basic stats on like the number of kids jailed, how they're referred, like what their ages are, what the level of schooling are, like all this stuff. And, and because, you know, statistics in criminal justice are notoriously terrible because everybody has like different ways of counting things and blah, blah, blah. But the, the, the AOC just was like, uh, I don't know, this data is too dirty. Like, we're just going to stop producing this. So since 2014, there's been no data on what is even happening inside these courts. So so we literally have no idea what's going on inside any of the juvenile courts in Tennessee because there's no way for us to pull public records. There's no way for us to pull a report that the state has produced saying, here are the trends. Here's the comparison. Here's what one county's doing versus another county. So it's just incredibly obscured. 
I know every year there's judicial conferences, and when they, like juvenile court judges, they'll kind of powwow together, criminal court judges, civil, et cetera. Is there enough in your reporting that there were kids from other counties being transferred to Rutherford County? Um, uh, that I can see inside of, um, because they do separate them out. Um, so when I look at the data for, and I had to public, I had to FOIA this, but like I can look at the numbers that are coming in from other counties because they're paying to stay there. Right. So it's revenue that's coming in. So that is something that I was able to look into and see, like, I don't necessarily know what the charges are or anything like that, but I know that like, Oh, they, this, this County, like that booked, like they booked this many kids from out of County and they stayed for this many days that month. And then I request, like, for example, like I, I can request like the, the, the invoices. Right. And then it's like, oh my God, this, they build this County, like five, like in one County, like $500,000 that year to like have their kids. So, oh my gosh. Yes. I mean, they were, they are, and were making a good bit of money off sending kids from other counties to their jail. Um, this was in your ProPublica reporting, $175 a night per mm-hmm, child, mm-hmm, the Rutherford yeah. County Juvenile Detention Center makes? Yeah, yeah. It's actually the um, my last reporting, as of my last reporting, and I think it's still the case, they were the most expensive place to send. So they're kind of the four seasons. Well, it's, so. the state of, it's the state <laughs> of the art. It's a state of the art facility that, mm-hmm. that Judge Davenport likes to... Mm-hmm. to pitch well yeah. i know all over the state the reason i ask is i know here in nashville we had a family law judge who's recently deceased judge philip smith and he had a juvenile on the witness stand who refused it was in a divorce case and he refused to give his passcode to unlock his iphone mm. he refused to give that number to the judge so the judge held him in, held him in contempt of court mm-hmm. sent him to the juvenile detention center once it mm-hmm. gets to judge sheila calloway She's like, no, yeah, <laughs> no, that's not happening. So Judge Smith sent him to Rutherford County. Oh, interesting. Yeah, uh huh. Rutherford County. Yeah, they take they. I mean, they contract at this point with like forty two different counties. So like more than half the state sends their kids there. Um, and it. I mean, yeah, they business is booming. I, it, I have so many questions now. <laughs> Just about the uh, outside the county thing, because I like all the stories that you tell and many of them. And I, I would like to get a great uh, a, a, a better hold on the scope of mm. this as well, because at the end of the day and again, I'm not trying to spoil it. Go listen. But twelve hundred mm. is sort of what they f- settled on that were sort of, quote unquote, wronged in this in this lawsuit. But yeah. at the end of the day, the numbers are significantly higher. But like you 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 report on a lot of eight year olds, nine year olds, seven year olds, 10 year olds, 11 year olds. Are, are, are you saying that there are eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds in the Rutherford County Juvenile Detention Center that are hours away from their, their families? Just be, I mean, they very for, well, yeah, they very for, well could be, yeah. For stuff that is, in theory, not what jailable is the right term? Or is this, or, mm. are we, do mm-hmm. we feel like that there is some, what's the right word, accuracy in, in what they're doing? Or is this, is uh, this story going to balloon, I guess, is maybe my question. I mean, I think there's, I think, there are definitely other counties that could face a lawsuit just like this one. Um, and I kind of, I, I do kind of tiptoe into that in the final episode. 
and kind of pivot out. Because what I would say is that there are a lot of outdated ideas about how to treat children. And Judge Davenport was just one judge who felt as though she knew what was right. Science be damned. Statistics be damned. Evidence-based outcomes be damned. She was going to do what she felt like those kids needed to do, needed to happen, you know. And there are a lot of judges out there that do that. I mean, as one woman told me from a state agency, because I went, I I said, "There, there are some other counties here that I see are getting written up for violating the laws to like keeping kids in jail for too long on these very small Um, these really minor offenses, running away, being unruly. And these are kids that should, like, they do not have a pre-existing case. Like, they don't, and they're just, like, kids that are running away for the first time or something. And they're being held for too long in Rutherford County. And she said, you're always going to have a judge somewhere who says, I'm just going to do it my way. And so, yeah, I mean, Judge Davenport was, this larger than life figure and the story is is so wild because there was all this other stuff around it the federal lawsuits she had her own radio show for 10 years on WGNS where she kind of waxed on about what she did and it was really kind of more of like a propaganda machine than anything but she she got to build this whole story around what she was doing with children and i mean Maybe not every judge judge has a radio show. Maybe not every judge has, you know, a Wes Clark who's saying, what the heck's going on here? And Or the largest facility. Or the largest, you yeah. know, but, yeah. but, but, but there are many, many judicial officers that have outdated ideas about how children yeah. should be treated. Hey, can you give us a sense of the scope of the adult complicity? See, is that the right word? Am I using complicity. Right? Complicity. Complicity. I, I knew I was going to get it. Complacency. Complicity. Yeah, yeah, all that. So, because yeah. again, there are so many, and you kind of talk with one in the final episode. Mm-hmm. I, I, again, go listen. Um, I think listening to his voice, it. it uh, I think there's a pretty normal human response listening to him <laughs> prioritize certain things over other things, and you point mm-hmm. that out. Can you give us the scope? Because I also want to get to the motives here, and you touch on that briefly mm-hmm. in the show, but. There's a lot of people that kept jobs, stayed employed, paid bills through all of this. I don't know if it's financially motivated, but can you give us a scope of the complicit nature of the adult circle around yeah. these two individuals, Lynn Duke and, and Judge Davenport? Oh, yeah. I mean, it goes from the bottom to the top of the food chain. I mean, this was a court that in a jail that was run by one person. So if you looked at the org chart, at the top of it was Judge Davenport. So essentially... Everyone worked for her. She could hire and fire the director. She recommended um, the appointments for magistrates, for, um, you know, and they would be rubber stamped by the county commission, but rubber stamped. Like when she made a recommendation for an appointment, that was going to be made. Um, But there were so many people. The thing about juvenile court, when you talk about what's different about it, is there are just lots of human beings in the room, right? There are social workers. There are DCS people. There are the lawyers. There are, like, the cops testifying. There's the judge. I mean, there's just, like, there is, like, a lot of lawyers told me, and I saw this, how, like, if you're in a juvenile courtroom, there's just, like, a lot of people. There's a lot of people in there. And so these are people that are there every day. And that's what this lawyer, who's kind of the protagonist in this, like says, he's like standing there and he's like, he's this new kid in, you know, on the block and he comes in and he's just like, wait, why is nobody 
seeing this? Like, whose reality am I in? And the case was that, like, there were social workers, DCS workers, court staff, jail staff, county commissioners, the county mayor. I mean, everybody was propping this whole system up, either by going in there every day and not saying anything, or by representing their clients, knowing that they should look at the law more carefully and that, th- that this was a bold-faced violation of it and not and they're not saying anything. Um, county commissioners by, listen, they're not lawyers, but hey, man, they could ask some better questions. You know, like <laughs> they could ask some better questions. Because they're funding the detention well, center. Yeah, they're right? holding the purse strings of it. And they're expanding this this place like if you look at the budget over the years, it just kept getting bigger and yep. bigger and bigger. And they are saying, yes, okay. I mean, at one point in my reporting, I was, I didn't know if it was quite apples to apples, but I compared like its budget growth to like the sheriff budget. It was growing faster than the sheriff's budget. Like this thing was just ballooning. And it was because Judge Davenport kept saying, business is booming and we need, you know, yeah. it's very busy. Like I need more, I need more, I need more. And they're going, okay, sure. And also, there is this attitude around judges that they can do anything they want to do and nobody can yeah. question them. I mean, even the sh- a sheriff's officer who executed her directives on arresting kids, which went in, you know, which flouted the law, state law, he said, like, I don't want to be held in contempt of court. Like, I don't want to go against the judge. So there were all of these people around her. And the jailer, Lynn Duke, I really don't want to forget her because she is a huge part of this. Um, she's the, the capo. Right? Still yeah. employed. Still she's employed. The, she's the consigliere there. Yeah. Uh, well, and I don't mean to cut you off because no, I want the, you to keep I know, going. I could, but but I, I want you to try to, if you have this, not information, I'm not looking for names necessarily mm-hmm. here. That's not what I, I care about necessarily. But we, we do have in our society these individuals that can prop up ecosystems around them. You know, you know, Taylor Swift, for example, right? There's like yeah. a whole industrial yeah. complex around her. Yeah. Politicians get this kind of treatment, athletes <laughs> that get this kind of treatment. And it's not a bad thing, but there's so many people that depend on this particular ecosystem, sometimes centered around one individual. Mm-hmm. And so do you did you get a sense that the motivation for all those individuals were that they agreed with her philosophical approach towards children or that hey, this is just my lifeline here. I've got to keep my job. Like uh, That's a great question. So a little bit of both. I mean, the, the, the when you think about, and like you know, Jim, like appointed lawyers, like this is the most like backwards kind of system you could imagine. As an appointed lawyer in <laughs> Jamie's her over court, there. Jamie's over there frothing. <laughs> like you are depending on her clerk to give you cases. So literally, if you are going to go against this judge, you are biting the hand that feeds you. So there is no incentive whatsoever. As but a it's kibble. <laughs> True. <laughs> but, you kibble. But like, <laughs> wh- if you're going to piss this judge off, you're not going to get cases anymore. Yeah. So there's no incentive to do that. You know, it's like, that's why I love Wes in this story. Like, basically, he goes on like a kamikaze mission. He's just <laughs> like, I'm going to fuck myself. And so I'm going to do it. But like. But it's the right right. thing to do. But it's the right thing to do. And so, yes, so for lawyers in that court, like in any court, like if you're getting appointed cases, it does not behoove you to be angry at the judge who is giving you those cases or the, you know, the judge's clerk is giving them to you technically. But um, so, yes, so there's that. But then also, oh, my gosh, like 
you know, the, um, the bureaucracy and, you know, this was an empire that Davenport and Duke built together and they were so proud of it. I mean, there were times where I was, I would read through, I read through in, in Lynn Duke, the jailer's personnel file, like her self reviews. And she said, you know, I'm proud of running the best detention center in the state. You know, she said, we run like a well-oiled machine. And there was like emails like from the judge to her being like, girl, you do the best job. Like you're great. And like, they loved, they felt like they were, they were creating the system. They were building this bureaucracy. They were adding jobs. They were, you know, this, this was, this, you know, a lot of people say like, oh, did they get kickbacks? No, there's no evidence to show that they got any kickbacks. But what they did get was power. What they did get was a system that they built from the ground up, literally, because they advocated for a new juvenile detention center. It was built like this was a thing that they had created and built up over more than two decades, and they were so proud of it. D- despite being told at the beginning of those two decades that they should go the opposite direction. <laughs> exactly. No, they're like, yeah, and that's the other thing, the arrogance Un- and the kind unbelievable. of... Unbelievable. The, they're like, no, no, we're just, we're just going to build a bigger detention center, more secure, even when the consultants were like, eh, you really shouldn't do that. And they're like, uh, I think we're going to fire you, and I think we're just going to do it. Let me zoom in on the lawyer for a minute. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Mother said, called him... Uh, very five times green. Yeah. And I can imagine being a starving lawyer once upon a time myself. But like, does he, is he asking for help from the bar association down there talking to other judges? Like what the fuck is going on here? Are, are y'all blind, deaf, dumb? Yeah. What? No, I mean, I think he, he was like, cause from his very first case, he's like, um, <laughs> I don't think this kid should be in jail. And when he would go to the lawyers, they're like, I don't know, what are you going to do? Like, what are you going to do? And Wes is such an interesting, interesting character because um, his backstory is fascinating. You won't get this in the podcast, but I mean, you do learn that he has struggled with with opioids his entire life. I mean, Wes came into that courtroom as kind of a surly 25-year-old with a real chip on his shoulder about the government. I mean, he grew up in Jamestown, which is one of the, you know, Fentress County, one of the poorest counties in the country. Um, his mom was a garment factory worker. His dad was a school teacher. She was laid off when the garment factory closed, which was the story of that town. When NATO, when NATO was signed, it was gutted. All the factories closed. Um, there were no jobs. Uh, his, I mean, he lived in, you know, a very kind of like middle class, like lower middle class, but he was well off. NAFTA. In, NAFTA. NAFTA. Did I say NATO? It's you fine. It's okay. Oh, I'm NAFTA. just two. I'm sorry. I've been reading too many. Yep. NAFTA. You're only a, it's sorry. only two letters sorry. off. You got three out of It's okay. I've just been reading too much news now of the day. I can't believe, I, I, I didn't, I didn't want to give you, a, you know, you caught me. Thank you. NAFTA. I, I can't believe NATO closed some factories. I didn't, I didn't. <laughs> NATO closed factories. <laughs> I didn't want to give a. Now, fucking no, 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 any, it's, it's, any seedlings. You're right. No, I mean that was a fact error on my part. I'm gonna, I'm gonna no, let me retract that. So when <laughs> NAFTA happened, then it was like you know all the jobs they went to Mexico, they went overseas, and um, and his town was really gutted, and it was at the exact same time that opioids came on the scene. And this was a factory town, right? This was a town built of aches and pains, and Wes. 
I mean, it hit that place like a ton of bricks. It was easier for Wes to get Oxycontin than it was to get alcohol or weed. He would mow his neighbor's lawn for Oxys. And we can have a whole other hour-long conversation about why Oxy was so available yeah. in that town. So like, <laughs> so. so like he, so he grew up in this. He had friends that were suddenly, you know, getting sent to prison, you know, for for long periods of time. He was seeing just like the the safety net fall out from under his town. Um, his cousin died in a motorcycle wreck while he was high on oxy and xanax like he walked out of this town being like what the fuck did the government do to me and my family and my friends in my town and he was pissed like he was so pissed and so that he brings all of that like into the courtroom so not only is he like this kid who's like scrappy who struggled who he himself had got caught up in the law but he also watched his town get devoured by oxycontin which was big profits for you know the pharmaceutical industry and the government didn't come in to help instead they were just persecuting his friends and family and so he comes into this courtroom and he's like i am mad and I want to do something and the justice system is whacked and like yeah. I know it from the inside out. And so he is like this perfect combination of smart, angry, like personal experience, personal experience. Yeah. I was going to say like grit, like he just has it all, you know, and that's what he brings in that first day. And that's why he's just like, uh, no, <laughs> I want to go to him as well, but a little bit also into the audio form. Um, mm-hmm. because it's one thing to write a really well-researched, reported, thorough, long, nuanced, intelligent story in print. It's another thing to hear uh, a 20-year-old recounting their seven-year-old experiences. It's another thing to hear Wes talk through all of these emotions. How do you feel like your story evolved or mm-hmm. the reaction maybe to the story revol- evolved or what you were able to tell people how was it different in a podcast form versus when you did a, a you know an extensive bit of rec- reporting in 2021? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a great question. I think one of the reasons why I love the medium of audio is because it's just so intimate. It's just so personal. And you know, when I wrote the piece in 2021, there were a few voices of the of the young people, the kids impacted. But I knew that like when we did the podcast, that I wanted to have a a lot more, and I wanted you to really hear them. Um, And there's just something so personal about hearing it from their own voice. And so um, I felt like there is a more visceral impact to it. I also feel like you can get a bit more nuance like you, it can be more character driven in a podcast like in the print piece there wasn't anything about the lawyers and I always knew man these lawyers these are so these guys are so fascinating so I knew it when I went to do a podcast that I wanted to make the lawyers um real characters in it um and I mean there's just you know I don't know there's just there's just shit that lands so much better in audio like when you hear the judge on the radio show and you hear yep. that like WGNS Murfreesboro you know or it's like they're the out cue is like Dolly Parton you know it's just you there is I love a story with like oh news of the weird quotient like just with like a quirkiness and like in audio I feel like you can really bring that in and tease that out in a way that you can't do in print and so one of the things that like when I set out to make, when I set out to do the print story, I was like, I want it to be a narrative. I want you to like come out of it enraged. And, and, and I think that we accomplished that when I went into the, uh, when, when, in, when I went to the podcast, 
I wanted those same things, but I also wanted you to be entertained. I wanted you to laugh. I wanted you to get mad. I wanted, and I wanted you to feel like it was very cinematic. You know, I, I always joked that like when I was going into it, what I really wanted was to make Better Call Saul. That's all I really wanted to make. Like I wanted Wes to be Bob Odenkirk. <laughs> I wanted him to be Jimmy McGill. I wanted him to be kind of this like, you know, but who just like becomes this kind of beloved figure to you. And, and so there is a beautiful pairing in, in audio for me. I mean, some people can do it in written pieces, but for me personally, there's a beautiful marriage of fact-based accountability, thoroughly reported with this kind of more creative narrative, character-driven cinematic, um, quality that you can bring it's, to it. And I wanted all of that. It's dr dramatic narrative nonfiction. As, yeah. <laughs> uh, as um, I can't remember the author's name. He wrote Social Network and he's oh, just um, wrote a book about Elon Musk that's going to be, a, it's already been optioned to be a movie. Oh yeah, I can't uh, remember. I'm it's like, called Breaking Twitter. It's not called Breaking X, Jamie. Okay, it's called Breaking Twitter. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, quick, uh, mm -hmm. I, I think all of that lands very well. And I think you guys did an extraordinary job because even again, like listening to one of the guys who's, and I, his name escapes me at the very end. Go listen, go listen. But the the commissioner, the, yeah, where he's oh just, Jeff where, Phillips, where he's mm -hmm. basically saying you can hear in his voice how clearly conflicted he is mm -hmm. about what he's actually saying in the moment, and you cannot get that across. Yes, yes, in in a in a written piece like. Like there's so, by the way, everyone needs to go back and read the original piece because there's so many nuggets in there that you guys don't cover in the podcast. Yeah, they're really companion pieces. Where I can go like, oh, I went back and reread it and I'd forgotten that like one of the people that Davenport tried to first um, appoint into a role like was was like fired that day because of oh like- Oh God, a, for felony marijuana for, chart. Which again, we can debate God's plant over there, Jamie, but- there's so many. There's so much more to it yeah, than just the funny. podcast. So go back and read the story as well. But I, I think even listening to him try to like work his way through an explanation of why they are, are giving so much more leeway to the system and to the people in charge and the adults mm -hmm. in the room than they were to the kids. And you can just I can hear it in his voice that he's like, oh shit, this is not good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those textures like you get yeah, like exactly. you can't write that in like all of those textures, the pauses, the the fumbling through the questions, the Yep. Uh, yep. yep. Yeah. The kids now. Uh, good outcomes, bad outcomes. Mm. Being in there made their life worse. A lot of a lot of times it did. I mean, everybody walked away with trauma. Uh, all the kids I talked to, like that was what was really remarkable to me was that basically I started like cold calling these kids like what had happened was that like I was searching them out through like Facebook but also like some of them like many people had responded to the lawsuit after like I did the story and when they were looking for claimants who were like hey this happened to me and they they weren't eligible because the statute of limitations had run out and so then the lawyers might shuttle them to me and I would talk to one and then I'd find you know they had a whole network of their friends who were also in the system so I just started like cold calling cold calling and um and it was just remarkable like how vivid the memories were and like how similar like even down to like the the jailer who would watch them shower there was one particular one who was like really not like it was weird 
and 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 his name like, was brought up by like multiple, you know, and like they had these overlapping reinforcing experiences that were so vivid, like just so vivid. Like the one kid who's like, or the guy who's like, I remember like the jail. I was so small, the jail suit like came over my elbows, like the short sleeves like came over my elbows, or like just. I don't know like the the memories were so vivid and that was unbelievable to me to know but it's also trauma right like it just like they didn't forget it it lodged into their brain as this core memory um and some of them it's called an adverse child experience by the way yes you can take an ace test <laughs> if you want and the, i assume all these kids have higher scores because of their experiences yeah and some of them it really was like a scared straight thing like some of them were just like oh i never got in trouble again but those those kids usually had pretty strong families, pretty strong support system. And then there was this whole other crop of kids that were like, well, yeah, I mean, I was a hurt kid and like all they did was hurt me more. And then I went to drug addiction and then I was in adult prison. And and then there was another group who were just like, yeah, I thought I was just a kid, but then I was like, oh, I guess I'm a bad kid now. So like, okay, I'm a bad kid. I'm going to be a bad kid now. And a lot of them talked about how like there were so many kids that would get cycled through there that like you would be in there with your kid from school, with a kid from your school. And you'd be like, oh yeah, that kid. And then you got out and be like, oh, hey, you're my friend now. Like we were just in juvie together, you know? And so, and those relationships would, would reinforce, you know, bad behavior again. And so there were a lot of different ways that the kids went, um, but a, a, a lot of them, it was not good. And and across the board, the experience was horrible. Yeah. Just horrible. The, the goal was rehabilitation and the result was recidivism. Yes. Yes. And does, Dav- does Davenport still live in the community? As far as I know, yes. Someone told me that they saw her at the DMV the other day. So. I hope it was a long line. <laughs> Uh, uh, 1200 is the number that was sort of official in the lawsuit, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, around 20, 25% or so actually got some, um, some settlement money, which is again, as you point out in the pod, much mm-hmm. higher rate than your average rate, which is just sad in general. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a sense of the, the actual number? Like, is it, are we talking 10,000 kids over 20 years? Like what would you have just a, I'm not asking you to report a number here, but I just, yeah. do you have a guess? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it was something somewhere around there. I mean, the reason why in like, you know, there were very narrow kind of like, what can you prove in this? And that was like the bar that the lawyers had to meet and also the bar that I have to meet as a journalist. And so it's like, we knew that in 2008, Lynn Duke wrote this illegal policy that sucked in so many kids to jail for when they shouldn't have been, that that was written down into the policy manual in 2008, and it stayed there for the next nine years. Um, We knew that the policy that Davenport had issued that led to wrongful arrests had started in 2003 and went up to 2017. But we also knew with the filter system, which is the legal policy that started in 2008, that in depositions, the, the, the jailer said, you know, it was based on a policy that was kind of unwritten that we'd like had before, which was like, if the kid's a threat, whatever the heck you think that means, like we're going to keep them. So we, and I've heard from kids who were jailed ostensibly for reasons that I, they told me like they wouldn't, I don't have their jail records, but like right. what they told me they went to jail for did not meet the statute. Um, and I talked to the kids that had been jailed in 2003 and 2002. And so th- the reality is that this probably went on for 20 years. 
Um, I, you know, I can't prove that, but like anecdotally, um, and uh, like I said, the jailer said, oh yeah, this was a policy that we had. And by the way, Lynn Duke has been with the juvenile court system there since 19, since the nineties, since like the early nineties. And as a youth, like she worked in youth services, which is essentially the probation department for um juveniles she then kind of moonlighted as a as a guard at the detention center there and she helped write the very first policy manual in like 2000 so like she's been a part of this thing from the very beginning and she was the one who put this policy in in 2008 so you can only you know you can only kind of deduce that like she'd been doing this since she got there in 2001 well, you alluded to this already in our conversation that there's a whole lot more you would have liked to have found or seen or reported or or, mm-hmm. or sort of told and as part of the story. There is still more, you know, further reaching tentacles that could affect other counties. Um, I certainly can hear your frustration in the final episode about how this sort of part of the story uh, mm-hmm. kind of gets wrapped up. But I hope you and the rest of all the people that have worked on this are have some semblance of accomplishment and pride <laughs> and um, you know, you guys should be very proud of the work that you guys did. So, uh, oh, excellent, so excellent show. Everybody go listen, go read the, uh, the ProPublica report and, uh, where can they find you all over the socials? Oh, on so twitter.com. I'm, I'm on Twitter at whatever the heck it's called. Um, it's I'm called X. Well, it's, it's everybody he's, he's, knows this. Wait, what do they say? Like it's Twitter. You have to type in twitter.com. Everybody to get I know. Knows this. So until the URL changes. X formerly known as Twitter. Yeah. Comma there. I'm, yeah. I mean, I have a very unique name, Mariba. It's spelled M-E-R-I-B-A-H. And you can just find me on Instagram at Mariba. It is private because I can't just let anybody see my kids and my cats. That's smart. My kid and my cats. Um, uh, but And then I'm on Twitter with the same Mariba. I got there early enough to get my own <laughs> handle. Um, and you can find me on Facebook, Mariba Knight. Um, so, uh, yeah, and my colleague Paige Flager yesterday did this crazy story about Knox County and the 83-year-old the, um, Mr. Bean um, who runs the juvenile detention there. Of course his name is Bean. <laughs> of course, of course it is. I know. I kept joking how there's two Mr. Beans and oh. very different. Um, <laughs> It's just the dark, the dark one. But, yeah, he uh. said, you know, when, we, when kids come in here, we treat them all like they're here for murder and Great. Pretty well, great. super. That would be a good conclusion. Like <laughs> what? Awesome. What? You know, they spent twenty years doing this unconstitutional shit over children. Mm-hmm. What? What did they accomplish? Oh God! I mean, they didn't make their community any safer. They churned out more bad behavior. Like. This is what trauma does. Like, this is what's so sad about about everything, about wars, about when a generation is traumatized, you are radicalizing people. You know, you are you are you are telling them you're making them feel terrible about themselves. You are making them angry. You are making them it, you're making it harder for them to self-regulate, to understand what you know where their behavior starts and ends and consequences begin and the impact of that stuff like when you 
take a kid and you say like you are yelling and not behaving so we will lock you in a cell for 23 hours a day and put a board over your window and take everything out but a bible and a cup and that kid is supposed to sit there and be like hmm yeah why did I yell when they have no stimulation all they want to do is socially interact like you are hurting them so that then they get out and they have less of an ability to regulate themselves you're not they're not treating anything they're hurting and so what did they do i mean ultimately i think they made their community less safe that is a good place to end it Maribel, thank you so much for coming in thank and you. you guys should be very proud of the work you did good job thank you so much yeah. for having me thank you it was awesome awesome That was Mariba Knight of, I think, everything, like New York Times, Serial Productions. Uh, ProPublica. ProPublica, NPR. She's basically, <laughs> she's doing all kinds of great stuff. National Public Radio. Just a, a fascinating listen. A really well-crafted and, and, and uh, she's as she said, cinematic delivery of a really terrifying, harrowing, and concerning story. And as she alluded to, Jamie, it sounds like there are a lot more potential tentacles to this. There's a lot more counties all these judges, Knox uh, County, you're up. Yeah, come on down. All these, all these juvenile court judges have just complete authority, and are and and each county has sort of got its own little power structure that's different from another county, and so it's just uh, it's a it's a fascinating look into how it's how it works. And she's been, as she said, she's been reporting on this kind of stuff for a long time. Uh, I think it's great. I think it's a great piece of work, and um, obviously. The characters are fascinating, and the audio version is, it really brings it all to life. So I think they did a great job. And you can hear how frustrated she is in the in the fourth episode, Jamie, <laughs> about the lack of accountability. And what's the right word? Like the lack of teeth in the conclusion of this particular part of the story. I have a feeling she's she's got some ideas about where she wants to go with the next part of it. Well, I'm just, next time I have my kids in the car, we're going to drive around Rutherford County. To go see it? To stay out of it. Oh, drive! You mean drive around it, like physically around it? I thought you meant like just go in there and drive around. <laughs> no, I'm gonna stay it on the border. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks to Maribel for coming in. Of course, please share the show. Please tell somebody about the product. We do appreciate it. Don't, don't, don't take the bait. That's something I've been saying in in my career for a long, long time. Don't take the bait. If you see something that's just people yelling at each other or screaming at each other, or you can tell that they've got agendas or don't, you don't have to get involved. Well, that's a great point. It's like even in the lead-in to our show, it's from Representative John Lewis that if you see something, say something. If you see something that's not right, say something. Nobody in fucking Rutherford County said a damn thing. Yeah, yeah. Until a greenhorn lawyer shows up. And uh, I think, I don't know about you, not to get too introspected here at the end, but like there's a, there's a reason that p certain people are in certain places at certain times. I'm not a huge believer in like higher powers putting us in places to do their will, but... There's a reason that that Wes was where he was when he was with his experience to, to look at that court case of that little kid and go, what the fuck? <laughs> I don't believe in coincidence, Bruno. So I think it's uh, it's it's man, great work by the by everybody involved. So they should be very proud. Uh, otherwise, I think that just about does it for us. Don't be a hater. Don't be a hater. Obviously, contact your legislator, contact your council member, rate, review, and subscribe. Share the show. We ask you to do a lot. And we appreciate it because we, we think you guys can handle it. For Jamie Hollemeyer and Braden Gall, thank you for listening. <laughs>